Thank you for your singing, and the children and youth as well. It's a privilege, again, to be in God's house this evening, and we greet you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Trust that you all had a good day. We were reminded by Zach the many things we have to be thankful for, and that's a good practice to do that. David Livingston graduated from Glasgow University in 1840 with a degree in medicine, and he went to Africa as a missionary. His goals were to explore the continent, stop the terrible slave trade, and convert, convert the people to Christianity. He died 33 years later in 1873. His body was taken back to England for burial, and crowds of people filled the streets to pay their respects to this faithful Christian missionary. But in that crowd, one elderly man wept aloud, and many wondered why he was so sorrowful. Upon investigation, it was found that this man had been a friend of David's in his youth, but this man had scorned Livingston's decision to serve Christ in Africa. He wasn't going to waste his time in the backlands of Africa. He was going to make a name for himself. He was going to live life to the full. But now as an old man, he was forced to look back at what he had accomplished over the years and compare it with what David Livingston had accomplished. And it was now clear who made the wise choice. And with regret, deep regret, and sorrow and tears, he said, I put the emphasis on the wrong world. It was Jesus who gave us the account of a rich man and a beggar. Who wants to be a beggar? None of us want to be a beggar. But by the time he concludes this account, we realize that it is the rich man who is really beggarly. In fact, he's worse than beggarly. He's condemned to hell for all eternity. This rich man put the emphasis on the wrong world. The beggar, on the other hand, is eternally rich, carried to Abraham's bosom to be blessed in heaven forever and ever. How can it be that the tables are turned? The focus of this account is on the rich man, so therefore it's a very sad story. But let's read the account as told by Jesus. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We begin reading with verse 19. Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. 
the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither way they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. In many of his parables, Jesus began teaching the parable by saying that the kingdom of heaven is like unto whatever he was going to tell them. Or he might have said, now learn the parable of the fig tree, for example, or what it may have been. In other words, Jesus clearly indicated that these were parables intended to teach a lesson. Some of his accounts, however, like this one, begin with the statement, there was a certain rich man. It's not called a parable. We find also in verse 20 that there was a certain beggar. And this beggar had a name. His name was Lazarus. As far as I know, Jesus did not give any parable where the characters actually had a personal name. These things would cause me to believe that this account is likely not a parable at all, but rather a true account of two actual people known by Jesus and described here for us, for the benefit of his hearers. The rich man was unnamed, maybe because some of the people in the audience there that Jesus was speaking to may have known him had his name been given. But Jesus describes this for us to give us insight into events that transpire following death and the importance of preparing for that day. We all face eternity. And this account gives us a picture of things we may anticipate at the end of our lives. Notice the description of these two men. Verse 19, the rich man was abounding in this world's goods. He was dressed in purple. Purple is a sign of royalty or nobility. And he was dressed in fine linen. Now the average person might have owned some coarse linen, but only the wealthy could afford fine linen, such as this man wore. He fared sumptuously every day. That is, whatever he had a hankering to eat or wear or whatever it might be, it was his. 
available from his storehouse just outside the rich, just, just over his storehouse, overflowing with the bounty of the land. He fared sumptuously. He was living the good life. Verse 20, not far away, in fact, just outside the rich man's gate, was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Now, in contrast to the rich man with his fine clothes, Lazarus wasn't much to look at. First of all, he was laid at the gate. Lazarus was lame. He couldn't walk by himself. Even worse, his body was covered with sores. He certainly wasn't someone beautiful to look at. We're made to wonder how many times a week, or even in a day, the rich man walked out through his gate, past Lazarus on his way to tend his business or associate with other nobility or make a name for himself without taking notice of Lazarus laying there outside his gate. The rich man had no time for such a destitute. He had places to go and things to do and helping out a poor beggar wasn't part of his daily schedule or plans. While the rich man ate sumptuously whatever his heart desired, Lazarus would have been extremely thankful for a few crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. While the rich man associated with high-class society, it was the dogs that comforted Lazarus. While the rich man could afford the best doctors and the best health care available, Lazarus was grateful for the dogs which came and licked his wounds, his sores. Verse 22, would seem that years went by in this manner until the day came that the beggar Lazarus died. And immediately upon death, the soul of Lazarus was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Now there's an interesting name. This is an interesting name for Lazarus's new home. Some think that Jesus used this name because it's how the scribes and the Pharisees referred to the destination of the righteous after death. Sometimes they would refer to it as Abraham's bosom. But it may simply imply that Lazarus was sitting next to Abraham at a banquet. And because people of that culture laid on couches to eat, it could be it seemed as if, as if he was right next to the bosom of Abraham who was next to him. At any rate, Lazarus went to be with his fathers. Abraham being the father of the Jews. And Abraham's bosom speaks of the intermediate place where the souls of the just await resurrection. It's later referred to as paradise. For Jesus told the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. So Lazarus was wafted away to the bliss of Abraham's bosom. Those feet that couldn't walk, he didn't need them. A company of angels escorted him there. Lazarus died, and implication is that he probably was not buried. The last phrase speaks of the burial of the rich man, end of verse 22. But there's no mention of Lazarus being buried. Perhaps the dogs ate his body. Perhaps it was laid out for the turkey buzzards to eat. But his soul was carried to Abraham's bosom. 
And he was found there enjoying the blessings of that place. But someone else also died, the rich man. And the scripture says he was buried. His body was treated with care like that of a person should be. But where did his soul find itself? Verse 23, and in hell he lift up his eyes. Hell or Hades here is the intermediate state of the lost, awaiting judgment. But he wasn't annihilated. He wasn't destroyed. He was fully conscious. Here he was in a state of torment, a state of torture. He didn't bring his riches with him. He didn't bring along his servants to serve him. His fancy food, his house of plenty, his barns, his bank account, they were all left behind. But as he looked around, way off in the distance, he could see Lazarus. And perhaps David and Isaiah and there among these people that he perhaps recognized, he recognized one at least, and that was Lazarus. Lazarus, that poor pauper who laid outside his gate day after day begging for crumbs to eat. So the rich man had noticed him after all because he knew him there. He recognized him, but he didn't have time to help Lazarus in this life. But now Lazarus was in a much better place than he was. Verse 24, the rich man cried out for mercy. Perhaps the first time he had ever done that. Cried out for mercy to Father Abraham. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger, just the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Have mercy on me. No, he might have said in this, in this my life on earth, I didn't have mercy on Lazarus, but this heat, I can't, I can't bear this thirst any longer. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus. I won't ask for a whole cup. Won't even ask for a teaspoon, just the tip of his finger, just a drop of water from all the plenty that I see over there among you. Just a drop, Father Abraham. But Abraham said in verse 25, he couldn't be persuaded. He really had no choice in the matter. The rich man had made his choices in life, and now decision time was over. All Abraham could do was remind the formerly rich man, but now beggarly man, of the blessings that he had enjoyed on earth. It was his own actions and decisions that determined his final destination. Verse 25, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. On earth you enjoyed the good things, and Lazarus, the evil, the bad. The rich man couldn't argue with that. He knew it was true, but those memories didn't bring any comfort to him now. Now Lazarus was comforted, and he was in agony. How long could he endure this torture? How long would this last? Verse 26, And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Between us is a great divide, a great chasm. 
that it's not possible to go from here to there or there to here. Life on earth is over. Decision time has passed. There's nothing Abraham or anyone else could do for this pleading man. For the scripture says plainly in Hebrews 9, 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Death had come for this poor man. Question that comes to any thinking person is, why? How did he end up in such a place? Why did a rich man end up in hell? Why did Lazarus go to paradise? Do all rich men go to hell? Do all paupers go to heaven? Did the rich man do some kind of terrible, wicked deed that got him into this place? What did Lazarus do to get to Abraham's bosom? Well, first of all, some things we should notice, I believe, is that the account does not attribute any overtly wicked deeds to the rich man. So we would be presumptuous and likely false accusers to attribute overt sin to him. But the fact that he seemingly ignored the opportunity to serve Lazarus, the man outside his gate, tells us something about his priorities. The rich man was selfishly focused on himself. It was like the man noted in the beginning of my illustration, out to make a name for himself. He was going to live life to the full. He didn't have time to consider death or what comes hereafter. His beautiful home, his sumptuous living were not necessarily sinful in themselves, but it seems apparent that his heart was set upon them. He sought happiness in them rather than in God. He lived solely for himself to the neglect of those he could have helped. Following a discourse with the rich young ruler, we read in Mark 10.25, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Most of us in this nation could be considered rich. Like the rich man, we eat sumptuously every day. Most of us drove a car here. We didn't walk. How tempting it is for us to trust in riches instead of trusting in God. This was the cause, the case of this rich man. But his riches couldn't delay death. Neither could they profit him in the day of judgment. But they drew his heart from God. I have to think about this often. Don't envy those that are richer than you. Don't envy those that are richer than you. Recognize that it's even more difficult for them to be saved than it is for you. Why? The temptation to trust in riches is very real. Lazarus, however, on the other hand, apparently served God and relied on him for his daily experience. It's a daily existence. We're not told anything about his spiritual condition, but there are other, other, are other scriptures in verses in scripture that plainly tell us what God requires to be saved, namely faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads us to obedience then to his word. Lazarus had no treasure on earth. He had put his treasure in heaven, 
and it was there to meet him upon his death. He traded in his crumbs for great riches. Well, the rich man was now realizing the terrible predicament that he was in. Those opportunities to help Lazarus and others that he'd been too busy and selfish to honor, those prompting to serve God that he'd brushed aside, they all came rushing back to his mind. But five of his brothers were still living. They'd likely inherited his great wealth when he had died. They were quickly following in his footsteps. Verse 27, then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father Abraham, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He now realized his folly in rejecting God. His brothers were heading the same path he was. They must be warned not to follow the same path. If only the lost could catch one glimpse of hell, the focus of their lives here on this earth would change forever. It's common for folks to make a mockery of hell. Life on earth is hell, they say. Hell can't be such a bad place. I'll have lots of friends there. We'll have a good time enjoying the pleasures of sin. Those are lies with which Satan deceives men. We heard about the roaring lion who seeks to deceive. These are the kinds of deception that he brings to man. This man had just gotten to Hades. He had just lifted up his eyes to see his surroundings. And all of a sudden, what? He wants to warn his friends, don't come to this place. His brothers, to make a change in their lives so that they don't come to this horrible place of torment. All of a sudden, being here with a group of his friends didn't seem like a very good idea. There was no enjoyment here. Having his family here would not help matters. In fact, he now cared for his brother's outcome perhaps more than he ever had before because he knew they were walking in the wrong direction, the same as he had done. What's Abraham's response? In verse 29, Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the creation story in Genesis. They have the mighty works of God in delivering Israel from Egypt. They have the laws and the standards of God in Deuteronomy. They have the praises unto God in the Psalms. They have the wisdom of the Lord in Proverbs. They have the account of the great revival in Jonah. They have the prophecies yet to be fulfilled in Daniel. They have God's faithfulness in leading Israel back from the captivity in Ezra and Nehemiah. They have the writings of Moses and they have the writings of the prophets. Let them hear them. Verse 30, that's not what the man wanted to hear. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they would repent. And Abraham responds in verse 31, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Jesus conveyed this account to his hearers. And what what was he teaching them? What would he like us to teach us from this account? One thing I believe would be the importance of right 
decisions. We all make many decisions each day. Some of them are not very important, have little consequence, but others have great impact for ourselves and for others. Can we walk by those in need without taking notice? It seems that's what this rich man did as he walked by Lazarus on a regular basis, noticing that he was there, but unwilling to inquire or aid him in any way. We're reminded of the priest and the Levite who did much the same in walking by the robbed man, whereas the good Samaritan stopped to provide help. Do we seek God's guidance in our daily choices with a heart to serve? A heart to serve others. Life is short. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, maybe three score and 10, maybe even 100 years. But the years that God gives us are given to us to lay up treasure in heaven and to prepare for eternity. To help others as well prepare for eternity. Are we using our life to lay up treasures in heaven? I don't know specifically what God would have you to do. I pray that we might carefully listen to the Holy Spirit and walk in the way that he leads us. But how sad it would be to live life with an emphasis on the wrong world, as David Livingston's friend did. If my goal is to make a name for myself, life will be meaningless and empty. In contrast, David Livingston followed God's call on his life. His life had meaning and purpose. And upon his death, the Lord recognized him as his child. There may be those here that God will call to a foreign land. Probably most of you will be called to serve here. But the the important thing is that we serve God where he calls us and in the way in which he calls us. The rich man's self-focus brought his ruin. He was focused on himself. His treasures were here on earth. His focus was on this world rather than the next. I think we can also see from this passage the great value of the scriptures. I think it's important to observe that Abraham told the rich man that Moses and the prophets, that is the scriptures, are sufficient to bring men to repentance and to salvation. Now, those at Jesus' time only had the Old Testament as the scriptures. We're blessed far and above Jesus hears in this request in several ways. First of all, Bibles are readily available to, in our country, to anyone that wants them. Yes, they're limited in some countries, almost non-existent in others. But for us here in America, anyone that wants a Bible can have one. It's written in a language that we can read and study and understand. And yet, God's word does not assimilate into our minds if it's laying on the coffee table. We need to open it up. We need to read it. We need to search it out and seek it. Moses and the prophets, sitting there on the shelf, do not help make anyone wise unto salvation. But as we read it daily, God reveals his word and his will to us through his word. So we're greatly blessed to have access to our personal copy of God's word, something that most of Jesus' hearers didn't have. 
In addition, we live in the age of grace under the New Covenant. We have the New Testament, which tells us of Jesus' work on Calvary for our sins. We no longer need to offer bulls and goats as sacrifice. The New Covenant is a better covenant and clearly points the way of salvation. Lazarus and the rich man lived under the Old Covenant. And Abraham directs the rich man to the Old Testament scriptures to witness truth to his brothers. Certainly, we are blessed beyond what this rich man was in that regard. Do we value the scriptures as we should? Never forget or doubt that the scriptures are sufficient to lead men to salvation. Whenever men hear the truth and reject it, it's not a deficiency of the word of God. Rather, it's the choice of the person who rejected it. Rejection of a sinful heart. Whenever we distribute or preach or share the scriptures, we're sharing the truth of God, which can convict this wayward soul and lead to salvation. The rich man wanted Abraham to send someone back to his brothers. They were headed in the same wrong path he had followed. They needed an additional They needed an additional push, was his emphasis. They needed someone from the dead to convince them of the error of their way. Maybe that was a veiled excuse for himself. Maybe he was complaining that that, uh, he needed more than he had. If someone from this terrible place goes back and tells them what this place is like, certainly they'll change their direction, change their path. But Abraham wouldn't hear it. They have all they need, he said. You had all you needed. Moses and the prophets are sufficient. If they will not hear that, neither would they believe, though one rose from the dead. Just think about someone returning from the dead for a moment. We should note that this account of Jesus was given before his death and resurrection. And in a matter of months, following Jesus giving this account, a different man named named Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, would return from the dead. Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, did return from the dead. After Jesus brought Lazarus back to life, this Lazarus faithfully taught about the power of God. Did people believe him? Did people turn to God and and listen to him? Well, some did, but many did not. And in fact, many of them hardened their hearts to the point that they said, this man, Lazarus, who's preaching about, came back from the dead, we need to kill him because of the message that he's sharing. Many of them did not turn to God, even though someone came back from the dead. Certainly not long after that, uh, Jesus himself died and came back. Did they believe him? Did they believe that he was resurrected? Some did. Many did not. And so if Lazarus, uh, they, they wouldn't hear. And so Abraham's response to this man was, though some returned from the dead, they still would not believe. Abraham says they wouldn't be persuaded to turn from their sin and live for the Lord. And many examples from Scripture, as well as those who reject salvation through Christ, show this to be true. The words of Abraham, they wouldn't believe, 
though someone rose from the dead. The scriptures are sufficient. Sufficient to lead men to salvation in Christ. As the Holy Spirit opens the word and speaks to those who read it. Isaiah 55 verse 11. So shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So the scriptures are important. The importance of right decisions. And then our choices determine our eternal destiny. The all-important question for eternity is, do I know the Lord? Am I ready to die? It's clear from this account that the standards and the social status of this world do not carry through to heaven many, or to, to eternity. Many of those who are first in this life will be last there. Those who occupy the high places here may be the lowest there. The rich man lifted up his eyes in hell, a place of great torment, agony beyond description. The songwriter captured the essence of this in a song that you may be familiar with. I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel and stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper, he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness, when death came, was left far behind. The angel that opened the records, not a trace of his greatness could find. And then the chorus, oh, what a weeping and wailing, as the lost were told of their fate, they cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. How very sad. The rich man, here as we notice, prayed, but his prayer was too late. He would love to have been annihilated, consumed, destroyed by the flames, ended all. Unfortunately, the false doctrine of annihilation is having resurgence in some circles. Contrary to scripture, some want to believe that God will not sentence unbelievers to eternal conscious suffering, that he's too loving to prescribe such a horrible punishment. They want to believe that the mortality of the soul is conditional and that only those who are saved will live forever. Don't be deceived. Every human being has a soul that will live forever, either in eternal life or in conscious, eternal suffering. Yes, God is love. He has provided a way of escape from damnation. But those who reject it will suffer eternally. Our soul is everlasting. It cannot die. The flames cannot be quenched. In verse 25, Abraham told the rich man, Son, remember. Imagine spending all eternity in godless hell remembering Remembering, remembering life on earth in the times that you rejected the call of the Holy Spirit. If only, if only, if only, must echo over and over again perpetually in the mind of the rich man and the minds of everyone who ever heard the gospel and rejected it. 
In contrast, paradise is a place of bliss. Lazarus is no longer lying at the gate of plenty, hoping for a few crumbs to sustain him through the night. He's feasting with Abraham. On the appointed day of his death, the Lord recognized the beggar Lazarus as one of his own, as one of his children. Lazarus' needs are well supplied. The physical limitations of his lame, sore body are gone. Choices. We reap what we sow. This account of Jesus follows teaching that he gave earlier in the chapter. Just very quickly, like to look at the two verses from the previous chapter, or same chapter, but before where I read Luke chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. We read there, Luke 16, verse 13, No man can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. We cannot serve two masters. We need to make a choice. And the only way salvation is by Jesus. The richest man in the world doesn't have enough money or goods to purchase salvation. The biggest philanthropist in the world cannot give away enough to earn salvation. The most righteous person this world has ever known cannot do enough to earn salvation. The monk who lives in the most remote spot of the planet and owns nothing but the shirt on his back and eats nuts and berries, he can't sacrifice enough to earn his salvation. But Jesus offers salvation freely to all who believe. Yes, there is another sense in which salvation also has a high cost. The cost of sacrifice, the cost of surrender, a cost of commitment. But consider the rich man, Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus. Who paid the higher cost? This account is catastrophe for the rich man. But for Lazarus, it's beautiful. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior this evening, the door is still open. I urge you to make that decision yet this evening as we give an invitation. But first, before we do that, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing for our salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, you gave your life so that we can be set free from the eternal damnation that we are deserved. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and the, that we have a copy of our own that we can read and study. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who as we open your word and read it speaks to our hearts and convicts us of sin and guides us in your way. Dear Lord, but we must choose to receive it. We must choose to follow you. And if there's anyone here this evening that does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, dear Lord, I pray that tonight might be the night when they would say yes to you. I want to follow you. I want to make you my Lord and my Savior. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Choices have consequences. We can't sow to the flesh and reap eternal life. We just can't do it. And so just as the rich man reaped what he sowed, we're going to do the same thing. If you're here this evening and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, I would ask you and encourage you to come forward to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior while we sing a verse of invitation.